0: Seattle, Seattle, and you need to buy your cellar
1: Don't go anywhere unless you want to. It's the Ron and Don Show, starring Ron and Don and sometimes me at RonDon.com.
0: Hey, you guys, what's going on? Welcome to episode 596 now of The Ron and Don Show. And yeah, we are on the Ron and Don Radio Network and sitting right here in the Rob Studios. Where'd Charlie the dog go?
2: What is up, Ron and Don Nation?
0: Yeah. Hey, coming up on uh, this episode, we're going to talk about a Sears house. Uh, let's talk about Sears houses. What a house used to cost. Like here in Seattle, you could buy a house for $1,596 out of Sears catalog. How come these homes are still around today? Because you think about spending $1,596, which in today's dollars will be 32 grand. Take 32 grand in the city of Seattle and see what you could buy in today's dollars for $32,000. I don't know that you would come close. Maybe you got a shed in the backyard. So let's talk about Sears houses and why we can't find that house today, but, uh, Who knows? Maybe Ron and Don can help me uh, find a house. Also, you're not going to believe what some D-list celebrities are doing right now. Now that there's the actor strike, the writing strike, some of them have gotten desperate, and you're not going to believe what they're up to. Before we get to that, though, let's get to this. They say that the number one diagnosis in America right now that we all like to talk about is trauma. Trauma. And they say we have to be careful of trauma, because trauma turns into what? Drama later on in life. And Ron, the question is this is people look on the internet and think about that. You 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 could get on TikTok this morning and you can follow a hundred different people that have all kinds of ideas about the way that you should live your life and about trauma and the things you should do and the ways that we should communicate and the way we should connect. And and a lot of people, I'm 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 amazed that a lot of people out there that are giving this advice and some of it's great advice. Like some of it resonates with me. They're not doctors. They're not psychologists. uh, They're not professors. They are people that have been through trauma. And as a result of that, they have something to share, something to say. They have a perspective and sometimes it's pretty effective, but is trauma right right now, Ron, is it being over? prescribed and over talked about and becoming the answer for all our past problems.
2: Well, I think it all centers around one man and one book. Uh, I don't remember the name of the man, but I've read most of the book. It's called, I believe it's called the body keeps score. And this is an interesting journey that um, happened in American psychology back in the day. um, Trauma was a thing, but they thought it was transient. Like something bad would happen to you. Um, you would It would affect your life, but you would sort of move on from that life. And so th- this, this guy that wrote uh, The Body Keeps Score back in the day was working with Vietnam vets. And so he came up with this theory, and the theory is basically this. What if these traumatic events that happen to us, if they're kind of stored in your body in some way? And so because what he was finding as he worked with these PTSD uh, patients and these people that were uh, coming back from Vietnam is that let's uh, all the classic stuff. Let's say they're walking down the street and a car backfires and boom, they're immediately they go into uh, the survival mode and it, they it have a flashback to what it was like in Nam. And so he started thinking, he's like, well, why why would that be? He's like, if, if trauma just happened in Vietnam and now Mm. it's two years later, how, how, what is happening? What, why? It's not just a one off. Like this is happening all over the place. So he comes up with this theory of like, okay, maybe what's happening is that in some way that we don't understand yet, the body is actually storing that event. And so when the, the car backfires, it, it is literally reenacting it's not a figurative thing for for this human being and his his actual body experience is the exact same thing as when he was in the jungle is the car the
0: trigger because we hear a lot about trigger and trauma right could be the
2: trigger or or like yeah that car triggers this this thing and so he begins to develop this theory and they start to do tests and he starts to work at at hospitals on the east coast and universities on the east coast and he's like This is my theory. My theory is that when a traumatic event happens, your body stores it somehow, and then over time, your body is expressing this trauma. Mm. So it can be in the form of... Uh you're holding on to stress and maybe you clench your fists and you grind your teeth and your shoulders are up to your earlobes. And so your body is trying to express this trauma. Maybe it's with a substance abuse that your body is stored up this trauma. It doesn't know how to process it, and so you numb yourself through substance. So he goes through and he starts to look at the evidence. Like, okay, and again, he was working with with veterans of war. He's like, what are they doing? Well, some guy's are abusive to their family and loved ones. Some guys just go into their shell. Some guys have these back these events where they have uh, flashbacks and, and they, they trigger the trauma. Some people are using substance, so he he divides this thing up and so that becomes his theory and it was rejected. It was rejected by the psychological community at the time. And he's like, no, I think I'm right here. He goes, I can't explain it 100% but I think that I'm right. The body, your physical body is somehow storing this trauma and it needs to get out. Mm. It needs to get out somehow. And you can either try to do it in a healthy way or do it in a non-healthy way. And as an offshoot of this, this is where you had the exposure therapy came along. And so you would have someone with a phobia that says, I'm, I'm afraid of heights. And so it was a radical thought at the time. It was like, you know how we're going to get you over being afraid of heights, expose you to heights. And they're like are you nuts like why would you ever do that and so they and he's like this is going to work so you, your traumatic event is being on a tall building so we're going to start you off on the floor one and we're going to take you right over to the edge and you're going to look down and then we're going to get higher and higher and higher and expose you until you become accustomed to heights you're never going to probably get a hundred percent over it but this exposure therapy is going to get you there he tried it with vietnam vets You're, you're afraid of loud noises. We're going to slowly expose you to louder and louder noises. We're going to take you to a gun range and let guns go off until you become reaccustomed to this. And we're going to break that linkage of your body's trauma to the sound of these weapons. And so as time has gone on, this is, this theory has been going now for 40 or 50 years. I think some of it has been borne out where the studies and the the psychological things have happened. And so it has become a thing where you can go, okay, um, am I being triggered? Like, is there something, is there a traumatic event that happened to me in the past that my body is storing? And I think about this a lot, where it's like, I'll catch myself sometimes where my shoulders will just be hunched and I will be tense. And it's like, why am I tense right now? Like I'm doing, maybe I'm writing a a contract for a client. And it's like, why is that making me super tense? Mm. And it's like, well, there's probably, and it's not the same as a Vietnam vet, but there's probably my body in a way is responding to this more than they should. My body is like, this is, this is life or death. Like you have to get this right. Like there's something in my body that wants to tense up because I feel like there's a lot on the line. Yeah. And if I, Take a moment and breathe, and let my shoulders go down and relax a little bit i'm going to perform better, but there is I think there is a kernel of truth to this theory, and they don't know a hundred percent how it works, but it sure seems like a viable theory that's
0: now. that's really good, and I love that you share that now now enter addiction or doing a behavior and inse- instead of dealing with maybe some of that trauma so i I'll, I'll share something. I'll share something a little more in depth that I've never really shared before. Uh, a number of years ago, in fact, probably six years ago now, uh, my son is in the world. I see patterns of my father that uh, that are in me that I know aren't going to be good for him. I just I know they're 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 not going to be good. And then I'm also now getting engaged to someone. So I'm getting engaged. I'm going to get married. I already had a marriage when I was in my thirties that lasted months, not years. Uh, and I can't blame that on her. I have to ask myself, what was my part in that? Right. And, and I probably should have never uh, did what I did, but, but, but I had my reasons and we've talked about that story a little bit uh, before. So, so, I decide that that I need to go see someone. Ron helps me and connects me with someone, and we're trying to figure out you know how often I'm gonna go see this therapist and I'm like hey I, I I think I can just come in once a month and i and I got this and I'm gonna go for a couple months and then I'm gonna get married and I have my son and everything will be great and 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 one of the things that the therapist told me is she's like, "Hey." you have to remember that when you start peeling back whatever behavior that you're involved in, and sometimes that can be connected to addiction. And and in my sense, I don't believe I'm an alcoholic, but at that time, uh, specifically I was, I was drinking too much. Right. And so when this trauma would come to visit me, especially on Friday nights when I was alone, I'd start feeling a lot of anxiety about the radio show, the performance, uh, uh, our ratings staying on top, making lots of money for the for the radio station, so that we still we still have jobs. It just it, it creates a, a lot of pressure. Then being a single dad, and now now taking on this situation, becoming married, and and when I would start driving to go see the therapist, uh, I would start explosively, explosively crying in the car, like uncontrollably. Like there, there's a couple of times I had to pull over because I couldn't drive. Uh, and, and, and she had warned me when you stop doing that behavior and we start dealing with the trauma, that's when it gets really hard. She's like, you know, some people are drug addicts and alcoholics. You look at someone like Anthony Bourdain he hadn't been drinking that day. And and I know that I see a lot of stuff online about Anthony Bourdain because, because, because people are thinking about his death because this is when it happened. So people are remembering him and he was a hardcore heroin addict, right? And he said, one of the reasons why I was listening to it the other day, he never took his life because he looked in the mirror and he saw somebody that was worth saving. But at some point he looked in the mirror and he didn't see somebody that was worth saving. And in that moment, in that moment, the the question is this, you know, he wasn't high, he wasn't drunk, he was completely sober, and he took his life. And and, and that's the thing that people don't tell you when you start stopping a behavior, especially a, a behavior that involves addiction. And my therapist told me that's when it gets hard that's when it gets difficult because you don't have that thing to reach for that's going to numb that thing that hurts like hell. And you have to make sure when you do that, that then you have the tools and you know what to do to self-soothe or to calm yourself Or to know to pick up the phone and reach out and tell somebody that you're feeling a certain way. Ron, once in a while, and and it's not often. It used to be more often, but I, but I, but I think we, we both have a toolbox now that we've been to therapy. I'll pick up the phone and just say, Hey, I need another human to hear this right now. And, and and I think Ron feels the same way toward me and so, towards some of the other friends that we have, that you can just pick up the phone and check in and say, this is going on. I just need to admit that this is happening. And I'm not going to reach for a Michelob. Not that I ever reached for a Michelob, but that's the only beer that came to mind just now. And and, and, and so, and the other thing that I, that I loved about my cognitive therapist is she had me write out my past, so he didn't live in the past, so she understood it, And she said, my job, my job is to sit here because you have lots of wounds and to pick at the wounds. And when I pick at the wounds, those wounds are going to bleed, but it's the only way to heal. To allow these wounds to heal, uh, they're going to have to bleed and it's going to hurt like a mother and it hurt. And when I finally figured out that component, I said, wow, once a month is not going to work. I started to go see her three times a week, I started getting up every morning at five o'clock and I still have this practice where I, where I write things. Many of those things I used to share publicly and I don't anymore. I, I keep those to myself. Uh, and there's a reason for that, that I'm not going to go to on this podcast, but, but, but it, it is so important that when you tap into and you start to understand the trauma and the drama that it's created in your life, that that you're in a place, in a safe place and space where you have the tools and know what to do. Because you can get through anything if you're able to hang in there for 22 minutes. Uh, that's what they tell people that are impulsive that want to commit suicide. That's what they tell people that have addiction issues and want to reach for something. That feeling can last for about 22 minutes. And it's in those 22 minutes that you decide, what your future is going to look like. Is this trauma going to take me, destroy me, or even destroy my life? Am I going to reach and numb? Or am I going to take the tools that I have, understand it, embrace it? But, but, and this is so important, uh, I'm not going to allow this to control the rest of my day, the rest of this hour, and certainly not the rest of my life. We will see you on the other side of this. All right, listen up, Everett. In Woodby Island and our friends over on Bainbridge and of course down in the South Sound and over to Wenatchee. What's and right up, up,
2: University Place? Yeah,
0: and right on the east side and of course all our freaky friends in Fremont. You know why I name all these places? Because Ron and Don have the biggest social media following and the biggest podcast of any realtor in the state of Washington and probably in the Pacific Northwest and probably in the country. As a result of that, Everybody in the Ron and Don Nation? Well, they're choosing Ron and Don to sell, buy, and invest in real estate. And why do you do that? It's because you trust us with a capital T and we have a connection from all our years of doing Trust or Radio but Ron at the end of the day we still have to step in do a great job be phenomenal and win the deal right Yeah. it all
2: starts with a Ron and Don sit down it's a 30 to 45 minute zoom call free of charge no obligation we'll meet you see if we make a good team email me directly ron at Ronandon.com, or you can set it up on the website RonandonSitdown.com.
0: All right, you guys, welcome back to the Ron and Don Show. Don't forget, if you need us, just reach out. All you have to do is go to Ronadon.com. I'm sitting in the foundation of a old house. They used to call it a Sears house. And yeah, you used to be able to get... Sears back in the day, especially in the uh, early 1900s, was, was like Amazon, probably like Amazon is to us today. You could go to the Sears catalog and buy just about anything, and a lot of people did near Seattle. In fact, the home next door is a Sears house. My house that was sitting there was a Sears house. When and you say
2: I, Sears house, they sold kits.
0: Yeah, so why don't we talk a little bit about a Sears house and, Ron, why these things are so hardy, and could you really buy a house back in the day for about $1,500 out of the Sears catalog, right?
2: Sure. I mean, it was it was equivalent to, like you said, thirty dollars to $40,000 today. But, yes, Sears and Roebuck – um, had this distribution center along the major rail lines in America, and so they came up with this plan of what we're going to do is package together the building supplies because they they carried everything individually. You know, they had nails in the the hardware department, and they had so they had all the constituent parts in the catalog. And they're like, what if we just put this together into a kit, and we'll sell the different kits? And so they would have these Sears uh, kit houses and they would bundle it all together, strap it down, put it on a railroad car, and they would drop it off in Seattle. And you had to have your own land, you'd have your own labor and all that stuff, um ready to go, your own foundation and all the trades would have to be there, but they would take that kit and bring it to your to your building site and all everything was numbered. And so you had a big instruction booklet you could put that house together, and, and all the parts were there, uh, minus appliances. and everything. But you could buy the appliances in the Sears catalog if you wanted to as yeah. well.
0: And, and they say in today's dollars, that same house, it seems cheap to me. It would cost $32,000. But as you said, that's not counting the labor. That's not counting the land. But when you just look at materials, it seems to me that it would be a lot more than $32,000 in today's dollars. I have to say, though, what's amazing about these homes is they have lasted the test of time and people just keep putting new roofs on them and new paint and they just keep going. And there's a lot of homes around here in the Seattle area. Look at Seattle in the late 1800s and you won't see a lot of homes in Seattle was a cliff. It wasn't, it hadn't been graded yet. And then you look after the fire that was here, a number of fires uh, after the gold rush, and and when Fort Lawton was created in the early 1900s to kind of be uh, uh, a lookout for the city of Seattle because a lot of people felt like it was lawless, and it was. That's when a lot of these homes were, were built, and a lot of fishermen uh, used to live in these homes. It,
2: it, it is surprising to me that um, prefabricated homes are not more of a standard now because we still drop off raw materials on the street and have someone put it together. Like there are a lot of different builders trying to crack this nut and make you know structurally insulated panels or modular homes where you can just create building blocks like lego where it's like okay here's what a wall unit looks like Here's give us the plan and we will cut down waste and and create the panels and bring them out to you on a flat packed. uh there's a, a really exciting technology out now it's a 3d printed home uh where you lay out the foundation and there's a it looks like a little crane but it squirts out this sort of slurry of cement and it 3d prints the walls uh, interior and exterior wow. walls yep. and then you know you lay in the windows and the roofing and all that stuff and the electrical conduit but like those houses are, that technology is improving to where pretty soon you could see a house go up where it it literally is 3D printed over a weekend. Uh, All of the walls could be done. And so, like, I think we're going to start trending that way. The building codes, the permitting process, especially in a city like Seattle, the zoning laws, all of those things Throw a lot of flies in the ointment, but I think there is a demand now to get back to this thing where it's like, hey, how can we build? We always talk about affordable housing. This is the type of thing that 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 will go a long way in that.
0: that and these thing. are very small homes, and big families lived in them. One of the reasons people like a lot of the craftsman's that were built is they're just boxes. And if you want to add on to it, and and some of these lots are pretty big, you could just you could just add on another box.
2: Too. Yeah, I lived in a in a Sears home, a kit home. Uh, in Auburn when we first moved back, t- uh, to the city and it was great. It's, it was cute. It was maybe, I don't know, 1200, 1300 square feet. Um, but I had, I went out and I got the, the catalog. I found a catalog reproduction and had it framed and hung it on the wall of that house because it looked almost exactly like the catalog.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the problem with a lot of those houses and like the one that we're sitting in is, uh, is a house where I wanted to go up. And and you can't just put a box on top of these homes without retrofitting all of that. And it's because a lot of them had some pretty squirrely foundations. Some of them were just sitting on pier and post. And then the the cement, the concrete they would use was we just we call the wheelbarrow pour. They just pour it by a wheelbarrow. So if you've ever cut into a basement before on some of these old craftsmen, and you're like, how come it's the the basement concrete when I cut it with a saw? Is six inches over here, and it's three inches over there. There were no cement mixers, right? And then with the new deal and the new rebuild, when they were rebuilding Europe, the invention of the cement mixer, the interstate, uh, that's why when you buy a lot of these homes that were built, especially around here in the 40s and 50s, they have lots of concrete in them. Uh, they're very stable. Uh, they're much easier to retrofit, and they're much easier to go up. Those are called old World War II battle boxes, and you'll see a lot of those battle boxes in Seattle as well. So, nonetheless, I think it will be interesting as we move forward. I am seeing, you know, a lot of ADUs and 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 DADUs that are being built in the city of Seattle. Uh, Some people are trying to take kit homes and put them in their backyard. And I would just caution you, if you're not going to build a stick-built home down there, sometimes you're actually devaluing your property by putting up a glorified shed. And I see that with some of the ADUs and DADUs that people are putting up. So be careful with that, Ron. You're actually a, an expert when it comes to ADUs and right. backyard. I content.
2: am ADU uh, DADU certified. I've yeah. taken the class. So uh, if that's something interesting to you, uh, give us an email. We can hook you up with a little bit of advice. Yeah,
0: and I, uh, and I own those, build those, and can uh, help you out as well. Just go to com. One more segment on the other side of this.
2: Hey, it's Ron here with Mitch Weeks from Mitch.loans. Mitch, it's interesting, as the interest rates have risen, many people thought, oh, well, there'll be a bunch of inventory that comes on right at the first part of 2023 and then things will level out. That didn't happen. Inventory remains tight, interest rates remain high. Why would that still be a good time to buy?
1: Well now's a great time to buy and that's because rates are going to drop and we're going to see a feeding frenzy. Right now there's a huge stagnant hole in the market and that's that 700k to 1.2ish million dollar home. And all the people living in those homes right now, either refied or bought in a two and a half to three and a half percent rate, and they're terrified to move. They know if they sell their home, they're going to have to jump into a six, six and a half percent rate, and it just won't look as attractive. So what, what's going to happen is rates are going to drop, and all those people who've wanted to move wanted to upsize, wanted to move for whatever reason, you know, people just like to move in life, but they don't move if there's this blocker. And we're going to see that blocker come off. We're going to see the cap come off. And we're going to see a a bit of a frenzy here.
2: All right. So this would be the time to buy and then replace the rate uh, once it drops with your new program.
1: Yeah. We've got the rate and replace program. You can buy now and you can refi free of charge, free of the lender fees. Um, And we'll take care of those for you. So great deal.
2: All right. Check him out online at Mitch.loans. It's not a .com. It's Mitch.loans.
0: All right, you guys, welcome back uh, to the Ron and Don show. Uh, they see some D-list celebrities now, and I think this may be connected to the writer strike and also to the actor's striking now. And they're saying, wow, you know what? I'm running out of money. Uh, some are selling their homes. I saw another, gen- uh, another gentleman the other day That's on a lot of detective shows. He's out running a painting crew and a painting business right now. Spirit, whatever take, just doing whatever you got to take. I think it's really interesting if you're a writer or an actor, and you weren't born into nepotism, and you don't have a silver spoon in your mouth, and you had to go to Hollywood and kind of find your way. A lot of them are, are used to doing jobs, waiting tables. Uh, you think of all the Friends cast, all the jobs that they had before they actually ended up on Friends. I also think it's really interesting that you see actors now that uh, a guy like Matt Damon or George Clooney, they're writing checks for a million dollars to help out some of the writers uh, and also how about some of the actors An actor on average, I didn't know this. If you work in Hollywood, you make about $60,000 a year. My friend, Aubrey Manning, if you ever saw her, her at the act theater, she did a show there called the sister act, which is very good. When she left here in Seattle, she went down and she's on a lot of CSI shows, all those shows. But when you're you're on there and you get little bits and parts, you don't get paid a lot of money when you're not the principal actor in that. Uh, also, some of those D-list actors and maybe some of the A, B, and C actors now. Uh, there's also a service where they will pick up the phone, they'll say happy birthday to someone, they'll deliver bad news if you're about to go through a divorce, uh, trying to lighten the mood, which I think is very interesting. Uh, Ron, when you when you zoom out here, I know that you love cinema, movies. Uh, I think you like to binge every once in a while. Where's this going? Do you think? Because every time I hear the actors complain or the writers complain about AI, it's like, Hey guys, you just got to go read the book. Who moved my cheese? Your cheese got moved. Things have changed. I think they can go ahead and strike all they want, but AI is going to have an impact. It's already having an impact on all our businesses. And this is the thing that Barack Obama warned about when he left the White House. He said, we are going to lose millions of jobs because of artificial intelligence and those jobs aren't coming back. So in, in a negotiation, you have to have leverage. And, and other than saying, hey, we're not going to write, we're not going to act. Uh, and I think I, I, I think some of these streaming services and some of these studios are just saying, hey, we got enough content, we're, we're, we're just going to wait you out. Where do you see this going?
2: I, I think that the um, – I agree with you that the times are changing and you need to adapt. However, the streaming royalty part of things has never been fair to the creators. Uh, I, I was watching a thing – this is a little bit different but kind of the same. I was watching a piece with Snoop Dogg. He said, listen, when I came up, if I made a record uh, and the CD sold a million copies – Uh, and they're 15 bucks a piece i know what my cut is going to be and i can make a million dollars because i sold a million albums he's like that was uh, i understood that he goes i can go on spotify now and have a track that gets a billion streams he's like how can a a song get streamed a billion times and i don't make a million dollars he's like that doesn't make any sense and he's right so if you had the amount of money that you get on these streaming services is fractions of a penny. And even if you are an artist or you're an actor, um, I think that that is a very valid point that they have, where it's like, okay, if, if you're on Netflix, a Netflix show, or Amazon Prime or Apple Plus or, or whatever, name your streaming service, even YouTube, and, and you get a million or a hundred million or a billion streams, which is a lot, what what is fair to that creator in the, in terms of income that they make? And so yes, if your friend only has two lines in that show, you know she she doesn't deserve a million dollars for being on an episode of CSI, but she probably deserves more than a dollar ninety five or whatever it was that she got. And so. Working out a an equitable system of saying, okay, if 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 we do get a million or ten million or a hundred million streams, what is fair to the writer, the person that came up with that concept, the person that was acting and directing? And so, if if you're just going to be a pen for hire, and you say you write us an episode, you get paid ten thousand dollars, you get no royalties whatsoever. If that person signs up for that gig, fine. But if you're like, no, I want to participate. In the success of this show, I believe in this project. I think we're going to get um, uh, tens of millions of streams. Then, then I think it is it should be fair to the creators as well. Uh, and, and right now, it sure does not seem that way, especially when a lot of these actors have gone out and they've been posting royalty checks on social media to say, hey, you recognize my face. You've seen me in these shows. Here's my royalty check. And sometimes they're 12 cents. Sometimes they're 95 cents. And you go, wow. Like I anticipated that they would make a living wage at least from being a recognizable person. And I forget who it was. There was someone that was on a sitcom, a popular sitcom that now works at Trader Joe's. And people would take pictures of me. Oh my God, I can't believe... So and so is working at Trader Joe's, and he finally came out on Instagram. And was like, "I have to work at Trader Joe's. Yes, you recognize me because I was on that sitcom that you loved. I don't make any money from that. Yeah, if I want to have make rent and have food for my family, I'm working at Trader Joe's.
0: It's, and I think some of us thought that got better, right? Because we we kept hearing, "Hey Gilligan from Gilligan's Island didn't make money in perpetuity. A little Buddy had to put his white hat back on and go do appearances." If he's around today, I think he'd own a cannabis dispenser because uh, Gilligan liked to smoke a lot of pot. But all those characters from that show and everybody from from, from Lovevote used to go back and look, and a lot of them had to go out and hustle and do, do public appearances. But then we started hearing, hey, you know what? Uh, the Friends cast, now that things are in reruns, they're making a ton of money. The whole cast is. Or we're looking at uh, Seinfeld all the money that all those actors continue to make. Look, including maybe not, Jerry not the writers, maybe, that?
2: maybe not the writers and the bit players. Yeah.
0: So, so, so here's the question on this that I, that I have Taylor Sheridan who invented Yellowstone and then he's invented out five other shows around Yellowstone. They've all done very, very well for Paramount. It's the only reason why people sign up for that streaming service. He's pissed because the way that he writes Yellowstone, he's written all those other shows he writes those shows himself. He has a cabin that he locks himself in out in Montana and he just sits there and writes writes. And he's and he says with this writer strike, he said what they are demanding on all these shows is that they put fifteen writers on these shows and he's like I don't need the writers on my show. I don't, I don't need a, a, a minimum number of writers on the show because I write the show. I write the show. I produce the show. I direct the show. The show stops with me. If you don't believe me, uh, he didn't have a lot of money either, but he really wanted that ranch in Montana where Yellowstone is filmed. He owns that ranch. He brought it from the woman that was passing away, and and he did it with future royalties from Yellowstone. That's why he had to keep writing. And now they want a fifth season out of him, and he's like, well, I got my money, I got the ranch, and if I'm going to do a fifth season and I'm writing this fifth season for you, I'm going to sit here in this little cabin, and I am going to write it, produce it, direct it, and I am going to take all the money. What do you say about that?
2: Yeah, he's he's the unicorn though. Like he that's yeah. not the the main thing. I think that's right. Like uh he's the outlier and so I think outliers, you know, can make their own rules. If you are Tom Brady and you're the best at what you do, you get paid more most of the time yeah. or you can write your own rule book.
0: Anyway, anyway, are you are are you missing some shows right now when you tune in and say, "Hey, this writers strike is about is Man, having an impact?" I do miss
2: um, you know, I used to watch the highlights of like Colbert and like some of the nighttime shows, because it was a, a more entertaining way to get your news in uh, for the day. So I do miss that, but I'm I'm learning to live without it. My my the media landscape is so fractured now. There's so many options that, you know, it, it it doesn't seem to impact me at all.
0: Yeah. Hey, you guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Ron and Don Show. If you need us, want to get signed up for the newsletter, or you want to sit down and talk about selling your house this year or next year in 2024, now is the time to do it. Or uh, we sat down with a couple buyers, uh, even investors right now, right? Go out, you buy that home, and you have an opportunity right now that maybe you didn't have two, two and a half years ago. Uh, and then can you refinance? Yeah, they call that falling in love with the property, you marry the property, and then you date the rate, right? Because you can refinance down the road, and many of us have surely done that. All you need to go is to, just go to Ronandonsitdown.com. reach out to us, we'll reach back, we'll do a virtual sit-down, and then our second meeting, we'll meet in person, Let's find out if we're a good team and get your real estate journey a-going, all right? RonandDawnSitDown.com. For Ron, myself, and Charlie the dog, and my little boy, who I still think is our station voice, you keep your head up, shoulders back, and we will see you next time. You're listening to the Ron and Don Show all day on the Ron and Don Radio Network.